And you're trying to create change and you're talking about creating change, but it's not being tracked. It's not being communicated. People don't feel like there's a sense of accountability. And when people don't feel like there's a sense of accountability, you're failing in that inclusion and belonging space. Hello, everyone. This is Jolene May, your host for the Diversity Podcast, where we talk with real people doing real work in the diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging space. If you want to explore what people are doing right, what positive impacts are happening, or even how positive changes can be done, you're in the right place. We welcome you to join us. Today, I am very appreciative to have Aisha Hamid with us. Aisha is the Assistant Vice President and DEI Manager at Alliant Insurance Services, and she is passionate about tackling systemic DEI. Aisha has written two grant-funded books, one of which is called Unveil Me Slowly, explores her own different intersecting identities, and encourages readers to explore their own spheres of influence. Aisha has trekked many milestones in the DEI space, but to name a few, she has executed diversity efforts across 55 offices in the Americas, Europe, Middle East, Africa, and the Asia Pacific. She has managed the development, facilitation, and metrics of over 200 programs, and she also heads the diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice efforts for the United Nations Association of the USA Kentucky Division. All those amazing accolades aside, Aisha loves being near bodies of water, but she can't swim. I'm super excited to have you with us today, Aisha. Super excited to be here, Jolene. Thanks again for inviting me to be a part of this podcast. Of course. I'm really excited for our conversation today. Let's go ahead and get started. First thing is you've done a lot of work in this space. So tell me about how you see your journey is right now and what's on the forefront of your heart, mind, soul when you approach your work currently. Yeah, great question. Right now, I am most focused on building accountability mechanisms. Um, and you'll hear me saying this word a lot and using people-centric uh, data-driven measures to identify and mitigate diversity, equity, and inclusion pain points or issues within organizations. I'm passionate about creating cultures of accountability and having effective accountability measures in place. In part, I think this helps lead to that. I'm excited to currently be working in the insurance industry because it's newer to embedding diversity, equity, and inclusion. And there's a lot of room for growth and creating meaningful change, not just within Alliant, um, but across the insurance industry as a whole. And one of the most rewarding parts of this work, especially more recently, um, has been the moments people come to me after a work call, whether we're either discussing or we're ideating new DE&I initiatives or programming, they'll come to me and they'll say they feel encouraged or hopeful about progress. And DE&I to me isn't a race, it's a marathon. So these moments and the small wins that come along the way are all things I celebrate and look forward to. I love that you said people feel encouraged. That's what we want, especially facing change. That sounds awesome. And that's exactly what we want to be aiming for. So thank you for your work and stimulating that kind of culture and environment. Going to accountability. Before we move forward, let's go ahead and talk about that. Sometimes accountability can be like a difficult subject to approach for multiple levels. I mean, I think there's definitely a compliance side and then there's like a coaching side. And then there's that DEI side side that encompasses all of that. How have you seen accountability carried out, maybe not in the best ways, and also how have you seen it carried out with mechanisms that support growth and E&I? I can go on about accountability, but I think that the simplest way to say it is when there's no mechanisms in place, there's no uh, feedback loops, there's no data that's being collected, and there's no tracking being done for programming and initiatives to trickle out and for there to be no accountability in place. 
Um, in order for it to be effective, you want to make sure that there is some kind of tracking being done so that it's sustained over time. And usually the organizations and, and some of the initiatives that do carry out and that are successful, they have that in place. So one of the areas that I have heard when I've done conversations with other diversity leaders is the lack of accountability with middle management. There's a lot of articles right now, I think, in the mainstream about this. And so a lot of times the reason is because middle managers have so many different responsibilities, both to executives at the top, but also to the people below them. Employees are asking for a lot more right now because we're going through such a difficult time in a remote world. They have all these different responsibilities and there's no sense of how do you track this information? They are gathering diversity, equity, and inclusion results. And so, you know, just talking about it from that framework, since that is the overall topic, that's what we're coming across is that they're so busy trying to do the basics that they're not really able to focus on some of the nuances that relate to this work. So, you know, making sure that they're giving, allocating opportunities, meaningful opportunities that are professional development related to everyone and not just to specific people. That's one of the areas. So how do you build accountability to make sure that they are equitably allocating those opportunities? How do you make sure that in other ways that they're leading inclusively and making sure that that's being done over time? And one of the ways that can be done is by having, you know, regular calls, regular reports that capture that information, the bandwidth and with everything else. That's why I think that that's something that I'm seeing is like, there's a lot of efforts across the board that are unsuccessful because of this. And so that's just one example is a middle management. But there are a lot of other different areas as well where there's accountability is lacking. And when that happens, it creates a lot of distress within employees because you spend all this money to put some kind of program or initiative, you know, within and embed that within an organization. And you're trying to create change and you're talking about creating change, but it's not being tracked. It's not being communicated. People People don't feel like there's a sense of accountability. And when people don't feel like there's a sense of accountability, you're failing in that inclusion and belonging space. It's just very nuanced, but I find it so interesting. And I think that tracking piece that we talked about earlier is like what's key in order to make sure that it's successful. I appreciate the examples that you gave and communication and what you were talking about, the almost like the perception of accountability and that communication and how that relates, I'm assuming, and I'm connecting with transparency. And I think that also funnels into trust as well. So there's a lot of really intricate things that you're mentioning there with your response that I assume would affect so many levels in organizations. So thank you for sharing your insight on that. Let's talk about your book. So your book, Unveil Me Slowly. So tell me more about it. What were your aims and why did you write it? Quite simply, Unveil Me Slowly is a collection of poetry and prose about identity. It attempts to paint an intimate portrait of everyday life, sensuality, womanhood on a battleground of religious, cultural, and societal expectations. Now, the longer story, about five years ago, I was in a very bad spot in my life where I wasn't sure exactly who I was. I was Muslim and American, but people around me loved telling me that the two didn't go together, especially when I was wearing a hijab or headscarf. And then I was too American to be Pakistani, which is where my parents were born. And then I was too Pakistani to be American. So I felt like I didn't belong anywhere. And I wanted to understand what being authentic meant for me. A good friend of mine at the time introduced me to a few powerful writers and poets that he thought might help me along this journey. There was Farooq Farak Saad, Anais Neen, Parveen Shah. 
Shocker. I mean, I was captivated by their work. Here they were, three women like me from different parts of the world and eras of time, who were unafraid and unapologetic about being themselves through their writing. That led to my own self-exploration and immersion in writing poetry. I used it as a medium to express different parts of who I am and was eventually able to separate it into my different identity strands. So Muslim, Pakistani, American, woman, and then explore how these intersecting parts of who I am impacted the way I thought and felt about different things. So in essence, Unveil Me Slowly includes a series of you know, reflection questions about these different topics. And there's questions at the end of each poem I wrote. The intent is to allow people the same opportunity I had through other poets to reflect on and configure an authentic identity for themselves. I also wanted to use it as a tool for conversation and insight on the different challenges confronting some of the communities I belong to. I think that's just furthering again and thinking from a diversity, equity, and inclusion lens. I appreciate you laying that out. That's a really inspiring journey where I could see that it's almost like a vulnerable power of exploration and reflection and discovery. That's awesome. And I love that it sounds like it was a personal self-reflective and self-care journey for you. But not only that, it's also you made it into a resource for other people to find their authentic selves by sharing your own. And we also do that in diversity work, right? Where we share about ourselves and it creates a space. I think vulnerability is so critical for all of this work. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I I think the first time I came across vulnerability in a professional setting, I was like, oh, so that's how you do it? (laughs) I was like, oh. Yeah. Even the topic of professionalism, I mean, that's something that we could get into, but that is, I mean, rooted in a lot of problematic things. It's walking that fine line and understanding, is that barrier needed right there? Is that a barrier or is that an obstacle or is it something that is a boundary? You said that your book encourages readers to explore their own spheres of influence. So I want to know more. What are spheres of influence and what do they mean to you, to us, to readers? When I refer to different spheres of influence, um, particularly in this context, I mean different aspects of both internal and external exposure. So this can be environmental, social, genetic, etc. So for example, this could be your heritage, religious beliefs that we've grown up with, the kinds of people we're surrounded by, the things we watch and the subliminal messaging around us, our sex and gender identity and how that impacts how we exist in different spaces. It's essentially the different things that shape and nurture us into forming our thinking and existence on a more granular level. I mean, nature, nurture. So this is like the latter. Okay, so now this is making me see myself as like a beautiful Venn diagram that's like sacred geometry or something, (laughs) which is true because there's intersections, right? I love that you thought of that. I mean, I think I love this topic just because it really makes you examine your own thinking and background to figure out why and how you came to be the way you are. Like, how did this all happen? Exactly. I'm totally excited to try it. I want to look at your book and do the exercises. So I'm excited for that. You've done a lot of resource work too. So let's talk about your work with Alliance. You talked to me about starting your own podcast with Alliance. So that's awesome. What are your hopes for this? This podcast and what's the purpose or mission that you're trying to fulfill with it? We are really trying to explore belonging through this podcast. So what does that mean to different people? And then really delving into that further by conversing with people both within our company, within Alliance, and externally across different industries to see what people are doing in different spaces to create cultures of inclusion and belonging. So it's really, you know, just to get a better understanding of what that means, what it looks like, and how people are doing it. So that way, hopefully, the audience listening in can get, you know, we can ideate different ways to do it and figure out effective things that are all 
already being done. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel. And then you can also like tweak it and change it to, you know, implement it within your own organizations or different spaces that you occupy. It's centered all around belonging, which I've noticed, you know, on that there, I've noticed that right now the topics, like the titles, the different positions for diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Earlier on, it was diversity and inclusion. I would see that happening a lot. Inclusion and diversity, diversity and inclusion. Eventually, I noticed equity coming up in job positions. And then I see that belonging is slowly starting to come in, but it's actually not very common. I don't see a lot of diversity professionals with belonging in their titles or justice for that matter. So I think that it's something that people think is very difficult to get to that place because it's a bit more intimate than inclusion. Um, Belonging is something completely different. And so I think that being able to explore that further and figure out ways that people are already doing it will help encourage organizations and people in implementing changes that will hopefully, you know, so that we can see this word and this term coming up even more. Yeah, the journey of semantics in different fields is so interesting because, you know, semantics and knowing and stating the name of something, I think, is the first step towards awareness. I think we're seeing that growth as well in this field and breaking that down. And it's that step for us. So that's a really interesting journey that I'm seeing with that. It is a journey, right? A lot of things are journeys. And I think that it's constantly evolving. And it's really interesting to see which, you know, different things happen in the world around us for these things to take place for these changes to happen. It really makes you examine the environmental factors more. Definitely. And uh, where can listeners find your podcast? This podcast is not available yet. We're still in the middle of launching and getting it together. But once it is launched, I'll announce it on my LinkedIn. So the audience is welcome to follow me on there. It'll be announced there. It'll also be announced on our homepage at Alliant Insurance Services. So, you know, people are welcome to follow either of those pages once it is out. And once it's fully ready to go, it'll be all the links to listen to it or engage with it will be there. Listeners, if you'd like to know Aisha's LinkedIn, it'll be linked in the show notes as well. Okay, let's get into the passions. You stated you're passionate about systemic DEI. Can you tell us what you mean by systemic DEI and a little bit about your approach to it? When I say I'm passionate about systemic DEI, I mean I am most interested in exploring the structures, the processes, and systems within an organization that either discriminate upon or they deter underrepresented people from progressing, succeeding, in some cases, even existing within certain spaces. I think as a society, we tend to take racism, sexism, xenophobia, and all the other isms and phobias dealing with people different from us very personally, like it's an attack on our character. Um, But I don't think we spend enough time exploring the ways these different issues show up structurally until we can change systems. I don't think it's truly possible to achieve equity and create spaces of inclusion and belonging for everyone. In terms of my approach, I'm all about data. As you could already guess, I mentioned accountability so many times we talked about it. (laughs) So in order to figure out where the system is creating disadvantages or advantages for certain people, it's important for me to familiarize myself with the overall picture of the organization and then more specifically the systems that allow this to take place. I like identifying the issues first, and then I'll speak with different people to back the data with qualitative information, you know, so that it's more people centric and then collaborate with different stakeholders 
with that information to ideate ways to change the system that will benefit everyone. Of course, no one likes change. And so this part of the process is in no way easy or simple. It often requires a lot of pivoting and returning and building allies along the way to get to the meaningful change, which is the end goal. A hundred percent agree with what you said about looking at systems to create an impact. And most likely that would create a long lasting impact. And that's the goal, right? With a lot of our initiatives and DEI work that we're doing now is that it's not temporary. You want to change the cone of normal. So completely agree with that. The cone of normalcy. Tell us about that. Yeah, let's get into change management because that's all that is about. Let's talk about change management. Yes. Hello, listeners. Time for a quick break to give your brain a quick rest. If you have not done so already and would like to support our mission, please follow our podcast, leave a review, or share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. Thank you so much for listening in, and let's get back to the conversation. So change management, I think, is a great follow-on discussion after what we just talked about. But before we get too far into it, for those of our audience members that may not know, um, change management as a framework, it really focuses on managing the people side of change. It's essentially the fundamental ways in which a company implements change within its internal and external facing processes. And so my process follows the four key areas of change management. So number one, having a clear understanding of the change that needs to take place. That comes from having internal and sometimes market or competitor data and research to back you and an analysis that demonstrates the ROI or return on investment in creating the change. The second thing is planning the change. That's usually where a lot of the time is consumed because you want to make sure that you're working with the relevant stakeholders to get their buy-in, first of all, and then figuring out what the change is going to look like, how it's going to be launched, how it's going to be communicated, how it's going to be sustained over time, going back to the idea of sustaining change over time. And then you get into the actual implementing, which if you do the planning correctly, that part isn't as difficult. And then communicating that change. So this is where the normal CPs kind of comes in. So making sure you are transparent about it and everyone understands the reasoning and benefit of this change happening so that they feel that they're involved, that they're engaged. With the caveat, though, that there will always be people that are against it. Anytime change is implemented, people will not jump on board immediately. In an ideal world, they would. But as people were creatures of habits and we like to do things a certain kind of way. But once it's embedded and there's a mechanism to keep it sustained, that's where the normalcy, the cone of normalcy changes. It's, you know, eventually another, there's another process in place and it eventually becomes so commonplace that it becomes normalized. And that's where, you know, you can start sustaining it. People, you'll have more people on board because it'll be so commonplace that it eventually um, gets to a point where you have more and more people on board. But the beginning parts are always rocky. And the hardest part, as I mentioned, was actually planning that change and getting that buy-in from key leaders. You want to make sure that they are on board. And some of the strategies that I use for that is just making sure that I have a very clear understanding of why the change is needed and how that benefits everyone, particularly how it benefits the organization on a larger scale and how it ties into business goals. And then creating allies. Allies will be so important as you're having these conversations and and getting the overall buy-in and having that right research and data collected. That's definitely, (laughs) I could keep going, but I'm sure this is more than what you asked for. No, it's perfect. Honestly, I appreciate what you're saying because it's more nuanced, like we keep saying. 
certain people can want it, but also there's other people that are important that also need that buy-in. So how do we all interconnect? How do we gain and move towards mutual understanding to see what the actual benefit of this is? I think it starts with that, which actually I want to ask about that. So for organizations or in your work, working with change management, how have you seen change and change management in the systems? And I can see how you're talking about with culture. Are there tangible benefits that you have witnessed that maybe at first you're like, man, this is rocky. But at the end, you're like, oh, A, B, and C, that those are the benefits from our plans. I mean, I think that happens no matter what change you, you know, embed within an organization. There's always going to be some pieces that are going to seamlessly fit in. And, you know, people are going to have an easier time getting normalized to that. Um, But there's always going to be some pieces that may not make sense or no matter how much time has passed, people are not okay with it because it just inherently is so different from the culture of an organization. That's why it's so important, I think, to continuously assess it over time, figure out, okay, where are we getting from this system? Is it actually working? And then do we need to take a few steps back and approach it differently. So much of this work is about pivoting and taking different routes to get to the same destination. So I think that without going into like specifics, I mean, that's essentially what you see is what you notice is that people, you know, sometimes the process that you put in place, the change doesn't always go the way that you had envisioned it because the organization as a whole isn't ready for that change yet. So then you go back and you implement something smaller and then you eventually get to that same place. That's actually one of the misconceptions and assumptions about this process is people assume it happens very quickly, especially in that planning phase when you're getting everything together. They think it's going to happen quickly. It'll be bought in. Everything will go smoothly. And they get frustrated with how long it takes to create that change. And then other people, no matter how much you plan that communication piece, are still going to feel like they weren't properly informed or they're going to push back on the change. So it's just this particular area is very, like you mentioned, it's complex. It's difficult. There's always going to be a number of hurdles to get through. And it's still a very imperfect. There's no like, I gave some list of things that I normally do, but there's no clear resolution that will always um, come. It'll always be an imperfect work in progress. And you have to continuously think about ways to assessing it and changing your route to get there. I like what you said too about pivoting, like assessing and pivoting. Because that's true. People are different and you discover things while you're going through the process as well. And also communicating, communicating and making sure there's a feedback loop happening. I'm sure that some organizations have experienced also where they're going through the process, but they're coming into communication challenges and they're trying to funnel those or they're trying to make a helpful process for that where people can be heard but also for management to be able to manage those concerns or funnel those. Have you worked on any of those type of initiatives with organizations as well? I think every organization is different in the way that they communicate to people. So just being mindful of the idiosyncrasies within, you know, different organizations. So for some organizations, they primarily communicate through email. Others, like within Alliant, for example, we don't use a lot of emails for non-work-related matters. So if there's a diversity, equity, and inclusion change, you know, we don't just send a company-wide email just to like talk about that. We have to think about different ways to funnel that information in an effective way that's going to, you know, because we are very people-oriented. And so one of the ways that we might try to get information across is by letting the managing directors know pass it on to their, you know, middle management, and then that they'll pass it on to employees. They're hearing it from someone versus just reading it in an email. So that's like one of the ways that you can get around it. If your culture or your organization is, you know, more people 
centric and they like to have that information communicated in a more intimate way. Others, I mean, you want to make sure that that email <laughs> communicates that's very detail oriented. It talks about how it's going to benefit everyone. And that way they feel like, you know, they're a part of it. It's not just a change that people are doing based on a whim. And I think that's one of the biggest pieces of the problem. That's where you see the disconnect is where that happens. So that's a really great question about the communication, because that is, I think, so central into these changes being effective. I appreciate you also talking about the use of speaking to somebody. So I appreciate you laying that detail out because I think that's a detail that maybe is skipped sometimes. We don't think too much about it, but it's actually very, very important. Can you tell me about a time where you assisted an organization through a difficult situation in systemic DE&I and maybe became a very rewarding experience for you? Yeah, a small example, which can you know have a lot of impact. I was working with one organization where they didn't really have a very formalized um, process. They were allocating all of their meaningful work opportunities and to the same underrepresented people again and again, which can sometimes happen if you don't have, uh, if you're not tracking this information, you're going to go with your bias and you're going to pick people that you know well or that you like. And over time, especially with underrepresented people, research shows that, you know, sometimes there are uh, favorites that end up emerging. And so you're continuing to give, you know, organizations are continuing to give these opportunities to those specific underrepresented people and they feel good and they think they're doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work. When in reality, resources aren't being allocated equitably. So one of the ways I helped get around this was by gathering that information, um, going back, figuring out which people some of these opportunities were going to, counting the amount of opportunities that had been given out that were meaningful, just with the limited information I did have, and then showcasing that. And it really pointed towards certain individuals getting those opportunities. And then, you know, creating a system which helped track that information and which looked at different people on different levels. Like that was very strategic about which people were trying to assist. What are we trying to accomplish? So we just laid it all out and we were able to create groups of people that we want to make sure that they're getting opportunities as well because they hadn't previously been getting those same kinds of opportunities. And I think that, you know, even if people realize it or don't realize that this is happening, you know, it creates a lot of impact because now people that normally weren't being seen or who weren't being given those opportunities are suddenly getting a chance to engage and a chance to develop further. They, they're noticing that change and it all came from changing one little thing and tracking it. What I liked about your answer was I could see it all, like the structure, the processes, and I can see that it's embedded in what you do and that you do it well. So I just thank you for sharing your insight and your perspective on all of these things, change management, systemic DNI, and your resources. I've had an awesome time talking to you today. I really appreciate that. I think that there was a lot of important topics that we talked about, and I appreciate how your follow-on questions, there's always like these key details that we talk about that are often overlooked. And I think that's central to this conversation. Thank you for joining us today as we continue to explore how we can enable diversity at work. Follow us and get notified of our latest episodes. Also, we want to hear from you. Please like, rate, and review us on your podcast app or wherever you're listening in. If you want to contact us, please visit diverseek.com. That is D-I-V-E-R-S-E-E-K.com. This episode was produced by Madhu Nair, edited by Jonathan Dalek, researched by Jolene May, music composed by Nicholas Lang, and our production team includes Keisha Williams, Prashant Falbar, and Maria Corina. I am your host, Jolene May, and you have been listening to Diverse Seek.